Hello, welcome to episode 111 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. I hope you're well. This episode is in two parts. Coming up at the end is a short conversation with Noir Alsadir, recorded live at this year's Verve Poetry Festival. More about that later. So, uh, you know, stick around to the end. First up is a chat with poet and playwright Jackie Hagen. Jackie's originally from Skelmsdale, just outside Liverpool, or Skem as it's known locally and throughout this conversation. We met up in a function room in Manchester's Royal Exchange Theatre to talk about Jackie's new play, This Is Not A Safe Space, which she's just started touring. The play, presented by Unlimited and Big Feast, is based on interviews with over 80 people, and in it, Jackie examines the impact of benefit cuts on disabled people and others on the margins of society. Perhaps predictably, uh, considering the theme of this work, we discuss class a lot. More specifically, when the idea of class entered Jackie's consciousness and the effect it had on her gallbladder and mental health. We also get onto what it's like to be a working class person moving in poetry and theatre circles, though we did also attempt to imagine what it must be like when the tables are turned and middle class people are surrounded by scallies and herberts. Jackie and I are both bipolar, so steal yourselves for tangents aplenty. Before I forget, if you're looking to hire a function room in Manchester for an event, the folk at the Royal Exchange Theatre are very helpful and uh, really accommodating and rent out rooms very reasonably. I wouldn't know, recommend recording a podcast in the room I used, as you'll hear the acoustics are very sharp. But it's a great space for meetings and you'd fit a killer Iceland-based buffet in there. You can catch This Is Not A Safe Space at the following venues. The 23rd and 24th of March 2018 at the Attenborough Centre in Leicester as part of the De-Stress Fest. 25th of March 2018, the Alhambra Theatre in Morecambe. 29th of March 2018, at the Creation Space in Basingstoke. 30th of March 2018, the Lawrence Bately Theatre in Huddersfield. And the 17th to the 21st of April 2018, Camden People's Theatre in London. I'll list all of those dates in the episode description, if you want to get hold of those. This episode was only made possible with the aid of funding from Arts Council England, specifically their South West Regional Office. And if you'd like to keep up to date with everything that's going on with this podcast and our fledgling A Poem A Week series and follow us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at silent underscore tongue on Twitter or go over to lunarpoetrypodcast.com where you can also download a transcript of this episode. Gonna have to take a run up to this bit. Download and subscribe to everything we've ever done over at SoundCloud, Stitcher for Android devices, and iTunes for Apple users. Oh dear, that's boring. Please do us a favour and tell your friends, colleagues, and loved ones about us. It's the best way to help us reach new people. And if you want to make us really happy, then head over to iTunes and leave us a lovely, lovely review. I feel a bit dirty now, so as a palate cleanser, here's Jackie Hagen. It might just be the first time she's been introduced in that way.
Hiya, so um, I'm Jackie Hagen and where many of you have got a tube of meat, I've got a steel pole, so I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Um, and I'm from SCAM and I'm a, a writer, performer, playwright. This poem is called I Am Not Daniel Blake um, and it's about all the things that us council estate people do that piss people off and why we do them. You know Mary Kenny never misses mass, always getting a window put through because she doesn't give the ball back. Well, her daughter, Scabby Ann, was boasting on the bus that when the lecky goes, she'll always spend the last five or on cider instead of putting money on the meter because you can either sit in the light or drink in the dark. This lad, fag in his hand, can in the other, blinged up lover, pissed up mother, tattoos, trainees, probably looted, everything he owns, and you just know he's got a big, massive telly. A belly full of spam jam, thank you ma'am for giving me the taste of turkey twizzlers, probably never even heard of quinoa. We call him our kid, he's taller than he looks, if he was born somewhere else he might have read books. Felt quieter. As it is, he never shuts up. In private, he's one of them boys who grips the end of his sleeve so his feelings don't fall out. Our kid doesn't know the price of Shakespeare. He knows about flippancy as a defence, the lasting effect of school, the childhood fantasy of winning the pools, Disneyland. Never dreamt that some kids actually went. You know the way parents don't get a handbook? Well... Hoz didn't have any books. They had an accent and an attitude. So they made it up. Clever, eh? So what does the born skin do with their time? Well, we pronounce chimney wrong. And we play Schrodinger's scratch cards. See, some people buy a scratchy and scratch it straight away and lose. But our kid's clever. He puts it on the mantelpiece. Doesn't scratch it. He says that way you buy yourself a whole night's worth of hope for a quid and then lose. And yeah, we laugh when we shouldn't and we're dickheads when we're pissed. It's just a different type of trying than what you see on Pinterest. You know you can do stuff for free, but you can't go for a walk around here. And all the proper pubs have shut, the ones with the quality meat raffles. Theatre isn't aimed at us. So if you sat in the house every night... Big massive tallies, they're a good investment. So stop calling us lazy and backward. What we are is knackered from cold, broken homes in a world that says you're pointless, worthless, should give birth less. Shouldn't spend precious little cash on fags, booze, crap foods, drugs. Things that make it temporarily better, make it easier to open letters from the dreaded DSS, the debtors and the doctors, yeah. We do risk our health, for that's something that is almost nothing like bliss. But it's easier to be flippant about your everything than it is to let yourself care when you're past your present and your future is genuinely unfair. In the Manchester Lutons in 2011, it was the trainer shops and the mobile phone shops that got looted. Trainers and phones are just things that give you status when you can't get any. The poshest shop, Selfridges, did not get looted. It got set on fire.
Thank you very much, Jackie. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hello. I really love that line and image about Schrodinger's scratch card. Yeah, you know, yeah. And buying yourself hope. It's yeah. really uh, nice. It was quite odd to hear that poem read in this room that we're sitting in. This sort of luxurious <laughs> oak panelled. Um, the poshest room yeah, in the world. The former, I believe it's the former executive suite of the Royal Exchange. I think that's what we're sitting in. Like the, the oh, boardroom. Right. It's very brown, isn't it? It's very brown. And yeah. it's sort of uh, trying to be imposing. It's not very imposing anymore. It feels, I tell you what, it feels like a headmaster's room in a boarding school yeah. would look like on the telly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We would definitely have to imagine what that looks like on the telly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah. pair of us. <laughs> um, we were chatting briefly before uh, we started recording. You mentioned that you were from Skin and you mentioned it again there. Maybe we should start there. Oh, Talk, yeah, yeah, totally. It seems like a natural place to start yeah, after no, that point. Yeah, Skin. Yeah, so it's a overspill town from Liverpool. Uh, that was built in the 60s because there wasn't enough um, social housing in Liverpool. And they just kind of picked everyone up and plopped people there. It's actually in Blood Brothers. That's where they moved to in Blood Brothers. And the maze up, they're like, oh my God, look at all this green. And at first it was like, it was meant to be like, it was one of them utopian new towns. But the people who designed it, were up in the air, they weren't down on the ground, you know what I mean? They were, you know, they had the best of intentions, but like, they fucked it up really. Yeah, it just became people fighting, you know, and just people, you know what happens when people don't have enough money and resources and they're all oppressed and everything, they just kick off, you know what I mean? So yeah, so it became like that. Like, I didn't know that I was working class when I was a kid because we just never came up in conversation, like, and everyone, like, everyone is pretty much, like, there's no class system really in scam. Like, there's just people with slightly nicer shoes, you know, like, everyone, everyone's poor. And I had slightly nicer shoes, so I thought it was fine. But um, scam is like, um, uh, well, Alan Bennett says this, so I've sort of stolen it off him. Scam is like my inheritance, because, my God, like, <laughs> a lot of what I've written is, like, flavoured with scam um, and you're not going to get an actual inheritance so you might as well get something you know but yeah oh I told you before didn't I that um, I've already said this but you you know audience don't know do you that it's it's studied on uh, the geography GCSE syllabus now as a failed social experiment which I think is amazing but you know in the bigger picture it's not um, but I mean my source for that was a fella in a pub, so it might not be true. <laughs> uh, they, they, surely there must always believe, be believed, these fellas in pubs. I get most of the information from there, and then all my history comes from Blackadder. <laughs> <laughs> so was it a shock for you when you discovered that you were working class? Yeah, I went mad. I just, I don't mean like, oh, I kicked off. I mean, I went mental. Um, yeah, I went to university and it took me like two years to figure out why I wasn't fitting in, you know, because you, you just, you act differently. Like the whole class thing, it's not just money, is it? There's loads like of cultural differences that I, I hadn't cottoned on to. And, and you might think, oh, what a stupid girl. But like, I do live slightly in a different dimension in my head. But um, just stuff like you meet someone you never met them before. 
you slag off whatever's going on around you to, to bond, you know, rather than being lovely. Like, I hadn't learned that yet. Well, I mean, my dad died at the same time, so that's not handy, is it? And I just, um, I burnt down a kitchen and um, ended up in psychiatric wards. And then it was just, just went on for ages. That went on for about a decade. Um, but it was horrible. I mean, it's awful finding out that other people have had loads more opportunity and stuff. And like, they're like, oh, yeah, we went to, you know, we're going skiing in a minute. And it's like, freaking hell, I'm going to my job. <laughs> so, yeah, it was awful. Having chatted briefly before, I think we have fairly similar backgrounds. Yeah. But I was born in Westminster in London. And then one of our first houses, we lived in Housing Association, but we lived behind the Houses of Parliament, basically, on Old Pie Street, off Victoria Street. And you could walk to Big Ben in two minutes, you could walk to Buckingham Palace in about 10 or 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. And so it was, growing up, we couldn't escape the difference yeah, between and it those days. Yeah, over you as well. So I don't, I've got no concept of what it would be like to suddenly find it. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be just as insidious and just as damaging even if it's slow burning or but yeah. I can imagine the extreme shock I can try to imagine it because I think I had a similar thing when I was first I knew I had mental health issues but when I was first diagnosed with being bipolar that appeared to send me crazy <laughs> like yeah, just, that, yeah. just having to face up to this truth about yourself that you weren't necessarily you may have been aware of it slightly but it hadn't been forced upon you yeah. to accept it and then suddenly it's just dropped on you isn't it and yeah it's like the world is suddenly a different color isn't it and you've just suddenly seen everything in you like at the end of a story when you find out the twist yeah i was funny when because i'm i'm like been diagnosed i've been i mean i've been diagnosed a lot of things like in the mental world you get but I'm, now they've settled on bipolar for the minute you know but um actually i want to go off on one about yeah, that for it, yeah. um so women get um and girls get diagnosed as borderline personality disorder loads it's loads higher than for lads like lads hardly ever get it and it's a bit of an umbrella term and it's it seems to be you know, that it's like you're put into that category when they don't know what to do with you you're just like being a pain in the ass and one of the traits that's within one of the big traits is that you, you are manipulative right and i think this ties in with loads of other stuff right so being manipulative, like obviously doctors just say that's a bad thing. But if you're in a world where like the person or the system um, has got what you need, that doesn't have to be food and shelter. It could be like validation, you know, there's loads of stuff we need um, or love. So, yeah, so if you can't get that, well, you'd be manipulative is a smart choice, isn't it? You know, in, in terms of like class stuff. That's it. what I said then about the Lutons. You've you've got to go about things in in odd ways. Like I think like your body and mind is always trying to um, heal themselves, but you know sometimes things get in the way, and so you know whatever trauma or your immune system is a dickhead like mine is, and so your mind's all do something like like I have as a common um, hallucination is I hear applause, <laughs> which is really nice and really egocentric. That, that's like mental health gone right, you know? It's like, it, that does work. I just, you know, the body goes about it in funny ways. Like, my body produces far too much collagen, 
and so it's that which causes you'd, you'd think that'd make you have all nice lips and stuff but like it's really damaging um so yes i just think that manipulation is an interesting thing and sometimes it's really yeah i mean i, I definitely noticed the difference between women in my family that have been diagnosed with similar conditions as i and the the terms manipulative that term in itself was never used for me but i saw oh. it used for women in my family and yeah there, i think there is a definite God, well done, issue with people's motivations being questioned as to why you're asking for help mm. you know in terms and there's there's a there's a big issue i think in mental health services in this country with men always being able to find redemption through asking for help in a way that yeah, yeah. isn't available to a lot of women. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think. And it's always uh, that, yeah, the, the motivations behind why you might be seeking medication or therapy, or like you said, even just validation is seen as being not completely on, on the level in some way. Like yeah, you must yeah. want something else or yeah. you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Oh, it's all so old fashioned, isn't it? It's like, I can't believe that. I know that, you know, society clings on to old stuff, but, like, mental health services are way behind, aren't they? What are they playing at? Like, I have had good psychiatrists, but I just think that some of them could be a bit more... It's a surprise, isn't it, that they are not better at, like, you know, people and, like, interaction with people, seeing as they've chosen, uh, you know, a job that has to do with people and psyches, what you're playing at. Just, I think they should just do, yeah, do all the psychiatrist stuff that you do. And then at the end, you know, if they've asked really horrible shit that they always do, and you become a bit monotonous and stoic, don't you, and like robotic about telling them horrible answers about things that have happened in your life. But I just think it'd be nice if they sort of looked you in the eye at the end and said, like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's it. It's not, you know, I think that would change appointments loads. But I don't know, I guess it might be about boundaries or something. But, I mean, I've had ones that have said that. I had a really cool one who drove, like, an orange beetle and had long ginger hair and a pinstripe suit. So, obviously, I fell massively in love with them and started giving them presents, and then I wasn't allowed them anymore. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> so, the obviously, the, the people of Skem played a big part in the writing of that poem that you just read. How much of your work does that feed through, those people? It feels weird saying like those people. Sorry, yeah, it's not a very nice <laughs> no, way of putting no, it, no, it? I don't know, it just felt weird <laughs> if I would say those people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally, but I don't want to say, I don't want to slag off Skem and say like everyone's an alky or like every, you know, everyone's no, no, but I found, I found that to be quite tender, like even though you were talking yeah. about those sides of things, like you, it wasn't, yeah, but some people won't. Some people, you know, be like, you know, I haven't got a big massive telly and yeah, all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not you need you need the whole show that I do to genuinely try and well, try to change opinions like but yeah, of course it is. But I just I know like if people get from scam listens to this, they'd be like, What a cow But yeah, just like that yeah, I think I'm from a bit of working class that is different because my god the words working class and middle class cause bloody chaos don't they because obviously there's loads and loads of different levels obviously there is i think i'm from i like it i this sounds like i'm just opening a bracket and not going off one i'll close it um 
So my um, boyfriend is from Southport and he set up like the free newspaper in Scam. And so it was dead handy when like, because he knew what Scam was, because it's quite sort of an, a weird, isolated place. You know, it's not just working class. It's like, obviously, I did, I'd never come across the middle class somehow. And be, just because he knew what Scam was, that helped. And I think that I'm from quite a poor sort of version of we're not aspirational in no way would my mum want to be middle class that's like the worst thing in the world for like and I really like I clung on to my working class identity so much like at university you know like lager and lard and all that sort of stuff um that I had to have my gallbladder out <laughs> so it's like yeah lager lard angel delight and repressed class fury isn't good for your guts you know Oh, I've opened too many brackets here, haven't I? But I think it's important, what I'm saying. No, but I think it, it, it's completely the right thing to bring up in that within that term, working class, oh, that that's is, not, where that is not one group of people. That I've got is, it, I've got it, it's all right. Sorry, that was like right. going shut off, wasn't it? <laughs> you should tell me to shut up, it's fine. Just because I own the microphone, so it doesn't mean I should be allowed to just carry around speaking. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's like there's a version of working class, and I think it's maybe um, like on the level of maybe Peter K was, where you don't want to be middle class at all. You're not aspirational. Um, you're just about getting by. But um, also the way they put us across on benefit streets, like you're not like that either. You know, you you do nice things. You've got a, a bloody bin with red, you know, nice red fringing on it and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I'm from like quite a. Uh, a sort of version of working class that is just not often seen. So I had to put out all the bad things in because that's what people are pissed off about. I'm not going to put the nice red fringed bin in because that's not what needs to be explained. They don't care about that. Scams totally in everything. Yeah, the end. <laughs> <laughs> I might put out two versions of this interview. One will be five minutes yeah, long yeah. where you just wrap everything up succinctly and then we'll put out an extended version. This is the version. first question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so you mentioned briefly there that it, this poem is part of a, a larger show so it might seem it might be a natural thing now to just talk about that. Yeah um, so the show is called This Is Not A Safe Space. I'll come to the title later because it, like, it's nice to talk about that but it's not the biggest thing in it. I did like a couple of shows before that um, but it took a while to build up to actually talk about this stuff because, um, so the show is about, like, I went round and I interviewed 80 people um, on benefits, um, disabled, sort of people on the brink, um, and just working class people as well. And people who had, like, interesting things to say about class because I think being working class and then being shoved into, like, a middle class environment because of, like, whatever, you that's your job or whatever, is, is a bizarre place to be in. You have to, like, in the arts, you have to, like, drag up as middle class, you know, to get through a networking thing. And I'm really, I really, I'm going to say steadfast instead of stubborn. I think that's nicer about not doing that. But I do see how that sort of holds you back and what how people perceive you as, you know, friggin' leery and, like, unprofessional and stuff like that. And it's just rubbish. Yeah, so this show is um, it has the real voices, you know, from the interviews um, put in, you know, so you hear them and the spotlight is sort of on these voices and the stuff they say is just, 
you know, brilliant, beautiful, uh, heartbreaking and funny, dead funny. And then I speak in between about just various things. I don't. What I do is I, at the start I give you a, not a warning, but a, I don't know, a thing I tell you. Like, I do know that middle class people have problems too. You know, like, I want to make people relax, even though it is not a safe space. I want to make people, it's not about going, oh, middle class people, we hate you, because that's not useful. You know, this idea that, which is constant, constantly, constantly everywhere, of, you know, middle class people have had everything handed to them on a plate, or, you know, just everything's, you know, there's no problems if you're middle class. Obviously, you know, that just totally invalidates, like, someone's struggle or any sort of suffering or, you know, just hard graft to get where they are and, you know, and it just makes the... It just ruins it so we can't have a conversation about class, you know? So I sort of try to put that on another table. You know, it's all funny, by the way. <laughs> it's a comedy show. Um, put that on another table um, so that we can talk about class. But what I don't do is I don't talk about definitions and I've realised that that is, you know, just as in the way. Um, so maybe that's the next, you know, I'll do a few poems about that in the future. In what way do you mean the definitions? Um, well, that thing that I was saying about um, working class and middle class terms are just... Like, to, they get in the way. So um, imagine whatever, Facebook, or you're at a pub table, you're all some Christmas day, if you've got, like, a family with lots of different types of people. Um, and um, as soon as you start talking about class, everyone has to say, everyone just starts shouting at you what their sort of, what their class level is. You know, like, I, I mean, I was doing it a minute ago. And we all have to set out where we are. And then we've got to talk, you know, guilt is edging in. And, you know, it's, it just becomes like a bit like when you ignore a homeless person because you haven't got any money and you, you know, and you, or energy to do it. Uh, yeah, I just feel like that needs... I think, like, you could do, definitely do, like, a comedy version of that, of, you know, just, like, a, an outline of middle-class person, outline of working-class people, what do we all think it is? And, you know, if, you, if it's light enough, we can get all that stuff on the table and then just go, look, we're just people. Let's try and figure this thing out. And, you know, let's try and figure out the attitude thing. And, you know, when I say the attitude thing, I mean, like, class isn't just about money. It's about expectations and, you know, what you could be. You know, are you factory fodder or are you headed for something like this room that we're in now um, and opportunities given to you and how you're perceived as a human. Um, and the, the biggest thing, and I do address this a bit in the show, is, um, but I'd like to really unpick it more in the future because I've realised how fucking big it is, um, is this idea that if working class people just would work harder then they could become middle class. And so it's like, oh, why give them anything? They just need to work harder, you know, forgetting the fact that someone is working as hard as they can um, or has been totally, you know, if you feel, I say in the poem, um, you know, if society is looking on, on you as, like, not being worth much, how can you have any self-esteem yourself? How can you fight against all of that when you're knackered? Um, and... You know, it's it's just 
obviously the problem is much <laughs> like much more complex than just work harder i think that's a way of you know forgiving yourself like making yourself not have to deal with this massive problem we've got in society it's really poisonous isn't it that this idea that in order to be accepted and to improve yourself you have to redefine yourself yeah and you yeah. can't you can't be accepted as in working class you you have to climb that ladder you have to be aspirational yeah, yeah. you have to seek to achieve something and this idea that it feeds into that idea doesn't it well, don't complain about your low paid job get another job <laughs> yeah yeah as if that's an opportunity or a possibility <laughs> and for like a lot of you've people. got like time to do that yeah, as well yeah, like yeah. oh just go to like 30 interviews mm. this week <laughs> it actually come up on twitter recently sabrina mafouge wrote a long sort of twitter post about how She's constantly asked what it's like being a woman of colour, I think I'm remembering this bit right, child of a migrant, working within theatre and within the arts. And sure, no, one, yeah. no one ever asked her, and this was her, the reason for the post, no one ever asked her what it's like being working class in the arts. Yes, And that's yeah. what she sees as being the real barrier because that, I think I'm remembering this correctly, but it, the, the general gist of it was the class barrier that she faces feeds into all of those other issues, you know, yeah, and to her, that's where right. it starts. Yeah, 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 totally. I get, um, I'll, I'll give away the, the answer to the riddle from before, I've got one leg. <laughs> um, and so I've got one leg, and so I get invited to loads of um, diversity things. And that, but the way I said loads then, <laughs> I do appreciate them things, keep booking me. Um, but yeah, like loads of like talking on panels and stuff like that. and. And I, I get invited um, on the leg ticket, you know? And so I go and I do a few gags about the leg and then I start talking seriously about class. Because um, no no one's ever... Well, I mean, they have now because I haven't shut up about class for like a year and a half and I'm not going to shut up about it. It's like I've got to say the word first because it's an elephant in the room that no one really cares about as well because we know we're not going to talk about it. But it's nice that you can... You can, I've got like really good gaydar for like middle class people who've had to drag up, no, working class people who've had to drag up as middle class to get by. Um, and I can spot you for, you know what I mean? I can spot them everywhere. So it's great because then, you know, often we smoke <laughs> and you can go out and, you know, sort of just be working class together for a minute and it's a delight. This has come up quite a lot in conversations, mainly because. I'm, I'm the one leading them and it's just my yeah, experience, you're good. you know. Um, but one thing that doesn't get spoken about that often on the podcast, mainly because we're talking about people's work, but I'd like to maybe just pick your brains a bit on it. We've, we've just discussed what it's like to be working class within a, a very middle class setting, especially poetry and theatre. It's probably yeah. out of all the arts. It's, you know, <laughs> it's probably only then contemporary dance, which would get any worse for, for a working class person. Um, how is the other side of the coin when you then come home as an artist? When you, you, oh, do you mean when I go to when yeah, I go to yeah, STEM? I thought yeah. you were going to say what's it like middle class people being in a, a room full of working class people well, that, because that, like, that's that, hard. That, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm hoping actually a further conversation. I'm looking I for a couple of people to actually talk about that because I'm very aware that it can be equally as um, isolating and exclusionary. Part of it is like not knowing the etiquette, isn't it? And like you know, and people being really wary of you. 
just the, on the question that you didn't ask. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, is, um, but I'll go back to that. Um, yeah, I had, a, when I went around in the interviews, my sounds man is fucking gorgeous human, dead lovely. Um, but he's like, he's like a big fella, so you can't miss him. Um, and in Scam, and I, I think he probably says he's middle class, I can't remember, but in Scam anyway, he's like really perceived as like, ooh, get you. Um, but less camp is what I just did. <laughs> um, and yeah, so on every interview I had him next to me, um, holding the mic, trying to disappear. I was surprisingly good at disappearing. Um, so yeah, so I, it was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be interesting. But I mean, people are fine. I think it's when people are in a group situation that they have to do that bravado thing. And I understand I love bravado as a thing. I think it's heartbreaking. But I love watching it and writing about it. Um, but yeah, we're on a one-to-one um, of an Steen there. Um, <laughs> so what's it like going home? Oh my God. So got me going back to scam now. So it's been like quite a while. Of, I don't mean, I've been, I go back to scam all the time. But um, it's been, I've been this sort of arty-farty wanker for quite a while now. I said the words integral in front of my extended family like four years ago and that's been my nickname ever since <laughs> so it's a kind of like it's a jokey nice sort of constantly taking the piss out yeah i mean also like i've got loads of mates who are not into rc stuff like you know just not like well not it's not normal is it but you know just like to me normal like working class people like very working class and um, yeah, I just come out of forget and I come out with stuff, you know, like, you know, I'll say aesthetic and a, like, you know, and like a, a the, you know, the labour club or something like that. Um, so yeah, I've got plenty of people around me reminding me. Do you find, do you ever catch yourself sort of really sort of estating it up? a bit, you know, to, to, oh, to, yeah. try, to know try and feel like it. Yeah, yeah. Like Christmas Day, my accent went all over the place. And then I felt like I was being too posh. I was like, really? But I was doing the dinner that day, so it was already stressful, you know. But yeah, but I still really want to, like, impress, like, my mum and our mic, like, my brother. Like, I still am... Des- I mean, it's the performer's personality, isn't it? It's that you just want to impress. Um, your family <laughs> all the time and so you do it by doing like gigs above pubs when they're not even there but um, yeah I just really want to impress them and I don't know if, if it's like I'm trying to fit in I'm trying to remember me as scam and I'm going like all right there la and then like I'm going but I'm like I also want to impress them because like I've done all this shit so I'm like you know oh yes the aesthetic of my new piece I'm bonkers. I can remember this. It's actually because we're now getting round to um, 2018's version of what is now an annual event. So we're coming up to like it, it, this is happened a year ago. I'm really happy to to for it to have happened. To the series was nominated and shortlisted for oh, for a brilliant. British Podcast Award, which is wow, a really great thing. Fuck. The only independent literature podcast to be nominated in 13 categories, right? And I was really wow, made up about dollar, it. Yeah. And I can remember telling. I tell my aunt, I'm really close to my aunt, my mum's sister, yeah, and I, yeah. I tell her everything. And she went, this look on her face like, that's really good. She knew it was good. Yeah, yeah, But she yeah. had no concept of what it was. <laughs> we were talking earlier, because not only is it a, sort of an art-based thing, but it's also in a medium that people still don't quite understand what a podcast is, because yeah. they know it's sort of like the radio. Yeah. 
So it's not even that, because I'm very hyper aware of not questioning the reason that people don't engage with the arts. They do what they want with their life. You yeah, know, it's yeah. not it's not a failure on their part. Oh, but it's just, God, but yeah. it's funny that I do sort of what I do sits in two areas that people don't have any idea about. You know? So it's <laughs> doubly sort of obscure. And it's the sort of word got around the family because it was on social media and stuff and people, like yeah. family members, follow the podcast stuff on Instagram and Facebook. And everyone was really pleased that this good thing had happened, but no one really understood what this good thing meant <laughs> and what it was about. It was really funny. And then I found myself sort of going, oh, it don't matter. It's yeah, just some old yeah. bollocks, do you know what I mean? But yeah. I don't mean that. You yeah, know, totally. I only said it's yeah, some yeah, old bollocks because yeah. I was down a pub. Yeah. And, it was on and pub, flippancy was, is yeah, a thing, yeah, yeah. right? So, like, flippancy is a very working class thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you're not allowed to care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'd sort of, or be passionate. Yeah. You're allowed, or, to you're allowed to be passionate yeah. about football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're allowed to mention things once. <laughs> yeah, But yeah. then it gets the reaction it gets, and then you've got to drop it. You can't keep yeah, bringing yeah. it up. Yeah. But I've found, actually, as well, one thing that I felt sort of linked me or tied me back in, even though my life was becoming ever more engrossed in poetry and this art form that was taking me further from what I felt like my roots yeah. were. Which is that, that isn't actually the truth, that's not what's happening, that's just what's in my head. Yeah. I used to think, well, I just, as long as I go to the pub still on a Sunday yeah. and have a chat with the same fellas and the same people, you know, you're still all right. But I've, so, I've, still sort of, right. I've stopped yeah, drinking yeah, now and now I can't thing. go to the pub oh, and now fuck. I've lost that yeah, time. Yeah. But it's this idea of like, what have you got to do? What have you got to continue to do to still be all right in people's eyes? Mm. I think the reason I'm thinking about it is because I've, I've noticed a lot of people that clearly aren't working class within poetry sort of dropping their H's and because that's sort of the pressure's there because that's where the funding is. You know, the funding is there if you're from a whatever the Mar Arts Council think is yeah, whatever yeah. is marginalised. Um, there's also the issue around people who are working class but don't necessarily look or sound it. Oh, you yeah, know, And, totally, and that, that yeah. problem that yeah. they have to sort of... Yeah. We've spoken a lot with um, Josephine Corcoran, who runs And Other Poems, who grew up in a low-income household, a yeah. Catholic family, loads of kids, had next to nothing growing up. And But if you met her, she sounds really yeah, middle class, yeah. but it's just a part of the country she grew up in. She doesn't have a particular yeah. accent. And I was really surprised when she told me about her upbringing. And I was like, well, of course, I'd completely prejudged, you so, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think this, I think it's really good that the funding is going towards platforming what, whoever we consider to be marginalised yeah. people. But it, it's sort of forcing us to wear our identity as a badge, isn't it, yeah, a lot. Yeah. And that's not always that positive, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like this work around how you identify in terms of class, do you think this has got a, f a finite period? And you, is, is the aim to continue to identify in this way or is the aim to reach a point where it doesn't have to be spoken about? Oh, no, I think that I personally won't want to make like art about the same thing all the time. Something else will piss me off. Bad bouncer, isn't it, the world switch it. Um, but... Um, like you do get, I, I feel, do you know what? You get like mascotized, don't you? You become like a token thing for whatever it is you're going on about that year. And I don't mind doing that, even though it's shit that it happens. But I'm happy to do that if it means I get to do whatever, you know, show I want. So I was like the token 
um, disabled person for ages, and I'm a bit sick of that. And yeah, I think you just do it until you, you know, you're gonna cry sick out of your eyes, like, <laughs> and um, hope that you've done something good in that time. I think. How do you, how do you manage other people's expectations of your work? Do you physically withdraw for for a while whilst you're because presumably you're not actually creating work that that's that is that different it's still your voice yeah it's just about how you emphasize particular parts of the work isn't it oh yeah of course yeah. but do you physically have to withdraw from performing in um, order to come back and redefine so back in, you know in order to avoid the same bookings yeah, and yeah. Yeah. um I don't know. I haven't. Do you know what? I've just gone with intuition. I've got a producer who tells me what to do. He seems to know what he's doing. I don't think this is good, a good thing. Like, I don't think people should aim to do this. But I just kind of, you know, like until I burst. Um, I don't sort of, I'm not as clever as managing it. Yeah. <laughs> and the main reason I ask is because I think a lot, quite a few people listening will probably be thinking the same thing because of the way that funding works. Yeah. Um, oh, I see, to do with funding. Well, not just because oh, there's a pressure on all sure. artists, I think, yeah. to, to, where do you earn your money? You very rarely earn money yeah, through book yeah. sales or through ticket sales. You know, yeah. a lot of the R&D is uh, Arts Council funded. A lot of the tour costs are Arts Council funded. You yeah. know, there are other funding bodies, but it's mainly the Arts Council. And the process of going through that application is one, it's just a series of ticking boxes. Yeah. And it's not to knock, I think there's a lot of really great work that goes on that comes out I of mean, the Arts Council. I think but... you should credit funders slightly more because it's like they just also, I don't know how to say this without going, oh, I'm awesome. Um, so just <laughs> I'm not trying not to say that. But um, like, did you also just like choose good work, don't they? And like, oh, I think it's more like it's the middle layer. Like, I think the funding bodies do a really good job of spreading money out. Yeah. But then there's the pressure on producers, particularly, of which I've found that pressure of then trying to direct a project to be representational rather than diverse, or and but hit oh, those diversity okay. quotas, and then that sort of that pressure or that feeling I feel then filters down to the participants in the project. Yeah. You know, yeah, and that's sort yeah. of a natural thing. And I'm just wondering how we. If I take myself out of the production role and put yeah. myself into a right, more rightly role or an artistic role, yeah. how do I avoid the pressure of being the writer with bipolar yeah, or the yeah. work? Because I'm so clearly defined by that, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm happy to talk about it. You sort of push, you drive yourself into those boxes almost, don't you? Yeah, we made show resource of, about this. Um, Sophie Willen, she's dead good. She's not a poet, she's a comedian, but um, about the way you get branded as different things. Um, but I think I've just been lucky in the fact that the things that I've wanted to go on about have been the things that funders want me to go on about. Um, so it's just accidental. And that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, sort of, it is like sophisticated work and stuff. It's not just like, but it has just been, people love a bit of scam, you know, and I do as well. So um, people love disabled people. They don't, society hates us. But funders like us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really glad you brought up the false leg because an audio thing, I don't know how I'd visually take that box. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's normally we're all like got um, little lights on and stuff I was gonna like say, I've that. I've seen pictures of and you and, and the front you haven't of come the as book, decorated. It's a new leg and it is shit and it is not getting decorated until it starts to behave. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why it looks. Mm. And it's even horrible as well. It's like green with a big bulbous thing on it. I'm pissed off. But anyway. 
Um, yeah, I have got a big false leg. <laughs> and I don't mind, quite like yeah, fashion. I'm going to send that, that two-minute clip to the Arts Council <laughs> in my evaluation. Yeah, yeah. see? <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe, since we're talking about funding, maybe we should talk about the Gerbud. Was it a prize or a commission? Woohoo! And congratulations, um, I just by the way. a bit of water <laughs> when I did that. It sounds really odd. It's a fellowship. Um, like Lord of the Rings, and it's um, but they give you loads of money, so to put cards on the table, they gave me fifteen grand, uh, along with Jane, Jane Kermain and Raymond Antipas, yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, and like fifteen grand was just like what the fuck. Um, but t- someone did say to me, you do know that like there's some people that that is not like a big massive what the fuck too, and I was like fuck off. So apparently, but but still, it was, my God. So for me, what that meant was because, so I've got, this is a bit like that bit on X Factor, like poor me, but like, so I've got one leg because I've got um, systemic sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disorder, which is like life limiting. So it's like you die sooner, which is, ooh. And um, I'm, I'm, what's it called? I'm not blind. <laughs> I'm not going to go through all the things I haven't got. But um, anyway, my eyes are shit. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, and my hands don't work and all this. I've got loads of shit wrong with me, basically. And like chronic fatigue and that. So what it meant, the money meant that I don't have to run around the country doing workshops and, you know, doing panels and all that stuff. I do love doing that stuff, but I need a rest. You know, I need to just friggin' sit down for a minute. And like I do a lot of stuff for free and stuff. I've done like over a thousand workshops for free and all that. Yeah, so that meant that I had to have a rest, which was just amazing. And also they give you like mentors, pay for mentors. And um, so I've got like Claire Shaw, do you know her? No, I don't know. Oh, you should interview her. She's that good from Burnley. She was like the second biggest baby ever born in Burnley, something like that. Um, so yeah, you should get her off that fact. Um, and no, she's amazing. So I've got her, I feel embarrassed now because she's my mate as well. Um, but she's mentoring me to um, kick me up the arse. Um, so I'm writing like a new um, poetry collection. Um, and Henry Normal, because I've got a sitcom. I've got oh, a sitcom yeah. in the thing as well. In the, in the what? In the tube? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's not in the can yet, is it? It's in the no, tube before it ends up in the can. in the tube, yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of quavering at the start of the tube. Um, so, yeah, so that's what um, Gerard is. And Joy Francis runs it, and she's just one of them people you talk to for five minutes and it changes your life. She said to me, we were talking about... Um, it's, I feel like I'm not doing it as much here because you're nice. Um, I'd put on all this, you know, like I'd be on a radio thing and I'd have to give up, do a load of gags and, you know, all whistles and bells. And it was like a sort of um, persona or bravado of like bit, acting a bit stupider than I am. And she sort of saw that um, and she was like something like, you know, that like all that extra, like, you know, you don't have to do that. She was, but she put thing, nice things in, like, you're a smart cookie, so you, I know you already know this. That's the reason I have to do that. And it was like, oh, I'm a smart cookie, but I don't have to do that bit. Um, so, yeah, so they're just, just dead good. And it was so much validation because I thought, you know, 
I was crap. <laughs> so it sort of added to the role and, you know, I need outside sources because I haven't sorted myself out yet um, to keep telling me that I'm good. It's really, um, I, I follow the Jerwood Foundation quite keenly. I think they do. Oh, do you? Yeah, because, and actually I know, I personally know quite a few poets that were, or, and oh, writers that were up for that. Oh, you were up for Yeah, yeah, and I know, that yeah, reached I the shortlist. And I, think well, I saw it, people yeah, coming to, in to the interviews and waiting and stuff and, yeah, I was like, oh, what am so I doing? It's a really here? big thing, I think, to to, and they selected. I think it was really great. Um, it I was did think the like there's some people who hate me now. Uh, you know, well, like, I think what's she got maybe at, for? maybe at the time, but yeah. it sort of ties into <laughs> no, no, but it, it, it ties into that idea, doesn't it? That for a lot of people on that shortlist, fifteen thousand pounds is a huge amount of money. Yeah, but yeah. it does. I think it's very important to talk about the fact that to a lot of people that isn't. Yeah, much money yeah. like the first lot of arts council funding i got was 13 grand now yeah. now three thousand pounds of that went straight on um equipment so i was left for, for about with about 10 grand to sort of fund i was paying other people and yeah, some yeah. of it was for me but most of it was for travel and i couldn't believe i'd never seen that amount of money in my bank account yeah, ever. like yeah. it was insane but you just sort of think about it. I was, it just meant that I was working for about £2.20 an hour, right? Because it's not much money. And the amount of work yeah. that goes into the project. And that wasn't why I wanted the funding. It wasn't to turn it into a job. It was to make it... Happen. Yeah, make it happen and give yeah. me more time to focus on it. But one issue around the, the, the funding is not... It, this is not the problem for the funders. It's just this idea that more needs to be done to realise how uh, desperate a lot of people are for this money. Because it's the only thing that going to pay your rent or you know yeah, yeah. the only thing that's going to allow you to remain as a full-time artist and sometimes the attitude of some funding bodies of like oh we've done a really good thing we've given three thousand pounds to this person yeah, yeah pat ourselves on the back and you think well they're still not really going to do <laughs> much with it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you, you haven't yeah. done that oh, much for them, on the know? brink yeah. that should be a podcast <laughs> shouldn't it yeah i think that's pretty much what this is anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> um so I think the main reason I was asking about mentoring actually is just uh, yesterday actually I had a meeting with a young producer in Bristol and I'm using, going to be using some of the Arts Council funding to start a mentoring scheme and oh, yeah. help someone else start their own podcast and um, cool. so found someone that's similar to, similarly to me from a low-income background and has what advice are you going to give? It's another world, isn't well, it? this is it, yeah. I'm suddenly yeah. thinking, like, I've, I've now got to try and pretend that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, Or at least look like I know what I'm doing. Unpick it. You've yeah, got yeah. to do it as a diagram. Because I haven't, actually, I haven't actually spent much time explaining to people my process around making a podcast. It yeah. just sort of happens. And now I'm now I'm now in a position and I have the responsibility to actually sit down with someone and... I mean, in there's part. all the electric cables part that you can explain, isn't it? And whatever that how, means. How not to but hang yourself with your own exactly, XLR cables yeah, yeah. whilst interviewing someone is the main thing. It's um, the good name for a poem. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's the talking to people. Fuck knows. You do it differently. What role, what role do you see yourself as an artist? Do you see yourself as a mentor for people? Even, uh, even, you know what? Even, even just on the bus and being a friggin' mentor, because I get <laughs> um, asked, um, and like all heart, I'm not slagging you off all, all these people, but um, um, but I just get sent like I'd say like about five messages on Facebook a day asking, you know, how can I get my work published? How how can I become, you know, how can I, you know, be in the place where you are? 
overnight, um, which I mean, you know, I, I, saw, I also don't like the thing like overnight success because I have grafted my fucking arse off. You know, it's been like 12 years. I've never hardly said no to a gig until I got ill. Um, and so that was, that was like 10 years. And, you know, it's just, um, that's the answer often, isn't it? It's just, if you love it, work your ass off. Yeah, I mean, quite often... There is, like, things you can tell people about publishers and all of that stuff, and they do that. I think that that's got missing somewhere because people see, like, Kate Tempest and stuff like that and go, people just say to me, like, I'm as good as them. Yeah. Why aren't I there? Yeah. Um, Or I'm better than them. (laughs) It's four types of inspiration, isn't it? It's like watching people who are, like, way, way better than you and become, like, really despondent. Watch people better than you, like, the normal type, and, like, you're like, whoa, I really, like, want to do this now. Watch people who you perceive as shitter than you and being like, oh, fuck this. This whole art form is crap. Seeing people that are shitter than you and going, whoa, yeah, I'm going to do this. There's um, another podcast called The Comedian's Comedian, and... uh similarly to this just chats about their career and um it's quite relaxed but there's always a question about like how did you get started in stand-up oh yeah i would say about 95 percent of his guests and he's had a lot of people on will say (laughs) i went to a stand-up night and thought everyone's shit i could do better (laughs) but i think there's a there's a particular type of ego that leads you to want that kind of validation from the audience and um uh, actually, there's probably a natural segue into asking you about what your relationship is with the audience and what kind of validation you look for through your work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's definitely changed loads. I think I've become a tiny bit of a grown-up around that area. Um, so to begin with, it was just totally, look at me, look at me, I've got something to say, I feel like no one else is saying this, look at me, I'll do a little dance for you. Which is just like the same as, say, every time I'd get like a taxi or something like that, you know, it was just how I lived. And I think it's a bit bipolar, and I think it's a bit um, the youngest child. So that seems to be a thing. And I think, like, some people, it's like you didn't get enough attention as a kid. But with me, I think I got, like, a lot of attention as a kid, and I was on stage and stuff. And, like, my mum was, like... My mum's bipolar as well, so I had, like, this flamboyant... I I feel like the 80s were, like, Cerise and Electric Blue, and everyone looking... Oh, well, my God, um, when... Um, I came home as a little baby um, in the Moses basket because that was all the rage and they put it in the middle of the floor and they turned the telly off and they looked at me instead um, and then that just never, you know, so I think that was the role. Um, so, yes, yeah, so to begin with, it was all about that. I'd love it if people sort of came up afterwards and stuff. And then it sort of changed, like, when I was doing the leg show some people have too many legs and that was like really I sort of maybe did it too early because it was like I was writing it when I was in hospital and like didn't know I was going to die or not I mean it was, I was clinging on to it a bit but I think it was a good show um, and people would come up afterwards and they'd tell me like all about I just it was my life at that time it was just hundreds and hundreds of people telling me their story and it can you kill your brain a little bit it's like empathy fatigue, isn't it? Especially when it's the thing you're trying to process and that you're doing on stage every night. And So, yeah, so then it just started being a bit like wanting to be on my own a little bit. Um, and then with this show, and then with the play, it was weird because it's a play and you're not in that, you know, you're not present. And, you know, I wasn't there half the time. <laughs> so 
then and then with this show it's it's to, like my mind is it's like I've finally thought about it like in a considered way it's fine like so people clap wonderful people have to clap you know that's the tradition in life and people join in so I kind of like oh yeah okay that's what happens at the end if they're like woo then okay but also this show like you know the fact that it's not a safe space and I will go there um, and I, I want people, I don't, it's not the type of show that you go, woo, uh, it's the type of show that you go, fucking hell, and then, you know, you sort of leave and ruminate over, I hope, um, and then the other reaction is people sort of come down, like, like crying, going, I've never been, <laughs> sorry, it's not like, again, like I say, I'm amazing, but, you know, some of the reactions is like, so, yeah, they come down crying and go, like, I've never, um, felt myself represented on stage before, except that we don't really say it that way in working class lands. But that sort of sentiment. And that is lovely. I fucking love that. It is a little bit exhausting and it makes me feel like shit. I'm in a position of responsibility. Um, okay, let's fucking bring it. Um, but yeah, now I'm like, fine. I can't see. There's no noise that, you know, like people laugh when they're happy and clap, you know, when, well, at the end. There's no noise that people make when they're inspired. <laughs> I was trying to, that was a joke, um, but I was trying to do it deadpan. I don't mean that, I just mean like, you know, it's in their own heads, isn't it? So it's more of a big picture, big picture um, relationship with the audience now. And, you know, and if people hate it as well, it just starts, I just want to start a fucking discussion about class. Um, so that was a very long answer. No, that was perfect. It was I think we running out of time. So I think we're going to just say to the listeners, if you want to go and make a noise for being inspired <laughs> and be involved with this discussion Create about one. class, yeah. then you can check out This Is Not A Safe Space. We're not going to mention dates because what I will have done, hopefully, will have mentioned the dates that are still available in the introduction to this episode so that you should already know the dates and the venues. Um, it sounds great. I think people should definitely get along to see it if they can follow us or follow Jackie on Twitter and all the other places that we all exist now in the ether. Oh, we're still doing the thing? Yeah. It's oh. fine. <laughs> I'm really professional, so I just slipped into it. I just, I thought you were just talking, yeah. I was and just sick, And the sitcom as well. And the sitcom, yeah. We exist online. Um, and the and kids I've, show. And the kids show, we haven't even got around to that. Yeah. People need to check you out online and then we'll get more into that. Still, um, still don't really know if we're still doing it or not. Yeah, it's still happening. <laughs> Thank you Sorry. very much, Jackie. <laughs> Thank you, David. You stuck around. Thank you. Next up is a short conversation with Noir Alsadir. Late last year, I was completely made up to be invited along to record some live interviews at the wonderful Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. I was lucky enough to go along to their first event last year and it remains one of the best literature events I've attended. The organisers, Stuart Bartholomew and Cynthia Miller, asked me to come along and host four 15-minute conversations with Sandeep K. Palmer, Roy McFarlane, and the winner of the Verve Poetry Competition 2018, C.I. Marshall, and of course, Noir. The loose idea for the conversations was to ask each writer about the role that live literature events play in their writing, but as you'll hear, that quickly fell apart. 
but in a good way. Instead of editing them together into a single episode, I've decided to put them out as sort of bonus tracks at the end of this and the next three episodes. It seems like the right thing to do. Though I might regret it. Sometimes you just have to make a decision and stick with it, right? Up now is me and Noah talking about writing for an imagined reader and treating our notebook and pen as tools of the trade. Tell your friends about us. Hello everybody. Welcome to Lunar Poetry Podcast at Verve Festival in the wonderful city of Birmingham. Exactly. More of that, more of that, more of that. Um, I just, we don't have too much time. I'm going to start my, uh, it's done. I'm joined for the first interview of a series of four at Verve this year with the fabulous Noir Al-Sadir. Noir is a poet, writer and psychoanalyst. Her collection Fourth Person Singular was shortlisted for the 2017 Forward Prize for Best Collection. That's good. <laughs> Appropriate, isn't it? I was going to say that my, this interview won't be as shambolic as my reading earlier. It might be. We'll start with a reading, please, Noir. Sketch 27. A man entered the subway car at Borough Hall, was about to sit, but just as his knees began to bend, the train jerked into motion. He stood up as though regaining composure after a brief humiliation, as though it were somehow shameful to be subject to gravity's impersonal force, caught in its grip, an object controlled by physics. Thank you very much, Noah. This is the most intimate stage I've ever stood on. It's almost like being on a milk crate, isn't it? I have to remember, though, also, that the, the majority of the audience for this, it would be an audio and descriptions of where I'm standing are of no use to anybody. The series of four talks that we're doing for this weekend, I was asked by Stuart and Cynthia to provide sort of an idea of what we would talk about. I suggested that we would talk, because we're at a literary festival, we would talk about the importance of those festivals to the individual writers. So we'll begin with that question, Noir. I'm excited for the answer. I sort of already know. But what role do these types of festivals play in your development as a writer? This is my first festival. <laughs> so it's to be determined. Um, when writers do this to me on the podcast, it's my favourite thing, just to leave me floundering. I do have to remember, though, um, there are people watching me, so I can't bask in it for too long. You were saying briefly before that you're usually more isolated. Did you use that word? Or just imagine Reclusive. It? Reclusive, yeah. How then does that inform the way you write? I think that it informs it completely because I, I don't know how to answer that question. That's so hard. I am reclusive, so I write from the reclusive space that I occupy. Yeah, And the work, I think, is um, coming from an internal space where I'm addressing an imagined reader that understands me, what Bakhtin called a super addressee, someone whose complete understanding and goodwill is part of how I imagine them. So did you at any stage in your writing development design a reader in mind to write for? Yeah, I think I always have a reader that's in mind that I'm writing for, but it doesn't necessarily match up with a person in the world. 
And so when the work goes into the world, I mean, whether at a festival or in publication, it is going to reach readers who are real people in the world and not just my imagined reader. And I let go because I can't control who's going to read it and how they're going to read it. But I think when I'm writing it, I have control over my addressee. I mean, who I'm imagining as I'm writing. I'm just looking at this wonderful, uh, I was going to say sea, fish pond of faces in front of us. This is quite an intimate room. It's not that big. I just find it hard how you would ever write without looking at these people and how this is your first experience. But what, This is my first time looking at the audience, yeah, actually. Yeah. I kind of was blocking them out. <laughs> yeah, we're just... Um, actually, the way we're standing is sort of uh, feeling a bit shifty towards them. But uh, it's not deliberate. I'm going to try and do this. This actually came up in a conversation with Caroline Bird, which will become the next... will be episode 110 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. And we were talking about the idea of an imagined reader that you might be writing for. How do you avoid the safety that comes with designing that reader yourself? How do you challenge yourself? Well, why would you want to? Okay. <laughs> I suppose... Why would you oh. want to imagine an unsafe reader? What would that do to your speaking, writing self? But isn't it a natural... Is it natural for most people to eventually move towards the safety? Or the safe zone. I don't know if I can speak for other people, um, but I do. Why would you want to do that in your writing? I'm not quite sure. To imagine, imagine judgment or criticism. I don't know how that would be a goal or helpful. I think more that I was wondering how you maintain that reader as being something to pleasing that reader how that becomes a challenge or stays a challenge for you if this person is imagined in your head. Because it would equally be as easy to imagine them to be really pleased with everything you write as well. Well, I think that if you're not worried about pleasing the reader, if you're worried about or concerned with being understood, pleasing isn't really part of being understood. I feel like pleasing the reader is about narcissism and wanting to be rewarded and to win and win in the eyes of others. And I feel like I write out of a very different space where I'm trying to communicate and connect. And if I imagine the reader to be someone who in my mind is alive and feeling and attempting to hear me and see me and understand what I'm expressing, then hopefully it'll be universal enough that it will reach the universal part in other people who weren't part of my imagined reader, but have some core of universality or humanity in them, which hopefully the work will reach. So do you have any other writers that you share your work with? Obviously, we've established that you don't necessarily share it with live audiences, but do you have any other writers that you share your work with in order to maintain that sense of universality? Well, this book, Fourth Person Singular, when I wrote it, I actually didn't show it to anyone until it was done. And then I showed it to one friend who was a writer and my editor, and that was it. And then as it went through production, um, there was an intern at Liverpool University Press who was a senior there, Natalie Bolterson, and she worked on it as well. And that was that was it. Yeah. I think I'm finding it hard to completely process it because most poets I talk to claim to be reclusive. 
you're really seeing this one through. <laughs> <laughs> you lived the life. Would you perhaps explain a little bit more about the process behind this collection for the audience, about the form that it takes and the structure? Um, the it's largely a book of in fragmented form. So there are some fragments that make up, I suppose, a long poem in the beginning. And then there are a few lyric essays and some what I call sketches, which were actually written in a sketchbook, but they're verbal sketches as opposed to drawing yes. sketches. And then there's an autobiography and footnotes, which was something that had come to me in a dream. I dreamt that I wrote my autobiography and the pages were blank and the text was all in footnotes. It kind of took its own form, but I also was writing it in a short period of time because I'm a massive procrastinator and I was coming up against the deadline for the book. I had a little over a month and I had to, had to write it or miss the opportunity. So I kind of went into a isolated Base and I didn't do anything else and I was working on it. And I think it really comes out of an enclosed state of mind and time period. And um, sometimes I look at it now and I, I almost don't remember writing it. Yeah. Although I recognize it's mine. It's, it's, it's sort of separate from me in a way. I always find it really interesting when writers talk about moving into writing in sketchbooks and moving away from notebooks and sort of freeing themselves from the lines within um was that a conscious decision or did it purely just reflect this idea that, you, that you'd seen that you'd seen of what this story might be um well i'm actually really obsessed with drawings and notebooks so when i go to museums i try to find the drawings of the artists i love and i feel like they're really intimate and they're i love when the drawings have places where something has been erased and it's smudgy and you can see the layers of the process. And I think I, because that's what I love to look at and to contemplate, I think in some ways this book was really my attempt to make the work that I would like to read or that I enjoy, even if it's visual art or writing. So do you sketch as well? Or no. No. Just <laughs> no. But I used to make pottery. Oh, okay. That's the so closest then, I've come. Yeah. Okay, I'm a furniture maker, and I and I have a, a similar. I carry sk sketchbooks around with me, and I, but I hate drawing. I really, it turns me inside out. Inside, out. I can't because I'm really bad at it, basically. But I'm still obsessed with this idea of creating image images. Through, I think that's what first drew me to poetry. I was determined to create images with my words, but was still trying to draw it in a way as well. That's really interesting. Heidegger actually has this um, moment where he talks about a carpenter and he says that if a carpenter wants to make something with wood, the carpenter can have an idea in their head of what they want to make. And then the idea goes from their head to their hands. But once their hands touch the actual wood, the wood has its own volition. The grains go in a certain direction. It can be wet. It can be dry. And so in touching the wood, an idea then has to be altered so that the idea then has to go from the hands to the back to the head and be altered so that there's an idea should always move in two directions from the head to the hands and then from the world back to the head 
in order to be adjusted. So if you're really writing something to have it work in the world, you have to also be listening and taking in what the world is telling you. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think it sort of ties into my obsession with the right type of paper and the right type of pen as well and the feeling... I have that, that same obsession. Yeah, yeah. What is your pen of choice? At the moment, I, I'm really into those Le Pen pens, yeah, the really yeah. thin, yes, yeah, yeah, fine-pointed yeah. pens. And Why they have... anyone would want anything other than a fine nib is beyond me. You can leave. if you have, <laughs> Honestly, if you have anything be above f final micro, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. yeah, and they have some great blues. Yeah, there's there's a sort of French blue, peacock blue. I think they call it peacock. I call it French in my own mind, but it's a really I like that color. So that's what I'm into now. But notebooks, I'm I'm having a hard time with. I keep trying. I have to switch it up. I can't keep writing into into the same notebook. Okay. I feel like I go through phases in the same way that my process. Sometimes it'll work for me to wake up at five every morning and write um, first thing, and then it's almost like I exhaust that and it doesn't work anymore and then I have to change it up and develop a new process and I have to do the same thing with paper and pens and I'm sort of in between notebooks. I've been trying a few but I've realized that what I what has been working is no longer working yeah. and then what I thought would work really doesn't but I, I think I had an idea of what I was going to write next and I felt like it should go into a certain notebook but then it's not right. I can't working. believe we have to stop now. This is <laughs> very frustrating. Um, I could go on about pens and paper forever. I'm, I'm holding a small note oh, yeah, in my hand. Oh, yeah, what do you out. have there? This Describe it, it for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to because it's horrible. And uh, I'll have to mention the brand name. And, um, Moleskin. It's Moleskin. As if anyone's listening for Moleskin. <laughs> um, we're going to finish with a reading, please, Nora. Okay. I'll read another sketch. Sketch 64. Pleasure and disgust, the border of desire, of aesthetics, where beauty and the uncanny meet. Is this the brink one must always live on, bare and bare, the vulnerability necessitated in feeling alive? When I have bared myself, I feel a compulsion to send out a flurry of signals to adjust the reception of others, to scramble the image that may have been momentarily revealed of me. Thanks. Thank you very much, Noir. Thank you, Verve. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs>